Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Drabblecast, episode 265. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. We have a special episode sponsor this week, a name you're no doubt familiar with if you listen to our show and subscribe in general to the cult of Roads Less Traveled. Author, radio host, and archmage of the absurd, Frank Key, and his new anthology of short fiction, Brute Beauty and Valor, and Act, O, Air, Pride, Plume, Here, Buckle. Frank Key has a way with words. In fact, I'd go so far as to call it an unhealthy obsession. Insouciant, pernicious, curdled and frousty, corrugated cardboard cupboards and gouda perka gunny sacks. These are but Lego pieces, fastidiously selected by Key as ingredients to make either stories or his award-winning Lego broth. In either case, you'll find yourself waking up in a state of muddled euphoria afterwards, missing several buttons on your shirt, unable to find your tabby, and curiously wanting more. Yes, Frank Key indeed has a way with words. Like a midget regurgitating a mini donut, they roll off the tongue and spatter lightly at your cute little feet, while also, like an Aaron Neville mole, never leaving your head, and quite possibly, I mean, has to be, really, right? Sort of cancerous. Frank Key doesn't just write words. He makes sweet love to them till they pee red. I'm saying these things with nothing but reverence, by the way. Key's writing is clearly brilliant. It's as if Douglas Adams and Salvador Dali had a baby that they just couldn't keep from huffing paint. Little rascal. But you know what? Say what you will about that baby. In the end, you still gotta hand it to them. Because, you know, they have those short, freaky little baby arms. We're going to give you a sample whiff from Frank Key's paper bag this week and next week with a two-parter of selections from the anthology. We'll start things off this week with one of my favorites, On the Nougat Nozzles of Neptune by Frank Key. Log, Stardate, The Ides of March, Year Dot Plus, 
redacted. Sims was right after all. John Cleves Sims Jr., 1779 to 1829, who posited that there were holes at the poles through which one could gain access to the hollow earth. He was absolutely correct in every particular, except one. He had the wrong planet. It is not our gorgeous earth that is hollow, but Neptune. Less gorgeous, certainly, and much, much colder, even than our Arctic and Antarctic regions, and lacking penguins. In fact, generally unearthly, as planets go. But it has holes at its poles, as we have seen during our sweeping orbit of the planet, as part of our latest five-year mission. Tomorrow we shall make an emergency landing close to one of the holes at one of the poles and send a team down on rope ladders. Captain's Log. Next day. A stupid and maddening argument erupted regarding which of the holes at which of Neptune's poles the landing party should descend on rope ladders. Mr. Poxhaven is terrified of penguins and argued for the Neptunian North Pole. We simply could not drum into his pointy head that there are no penguins on Neptune in either the South or North Polar regions. He stuffed his ears with space putty so he could not hear us beseeching him. Second Officer Wilmot made equally vociferous claims for making a descent at the Neptunian South Pole. He is fond of penguins and thinks there may be a colony living just below the surface in one of the interior spheres of the hollow Neptune. I lost my temper with both of them and had them slammed in the brig. I decided to postpone the landing until tomorrow and sought to keep the rest of the crew occupied with games of ping-pong and communal readings of interesting articles from back numbers of the Reader's Digest. Captain's Log The following day Fool that I am! I entrusted the key to the brig to Purser Blot, who has mislaid it. Regulations forbid carrying a jemmy aboard the starship, so we cannot force the door. Mr. Poxhaven and Second Officer Wilmot are growing increasingly fractious. They rub each other up the wrong way in the best of circumstances, and these are by no means the best of circumstances. We continue to orbit Neptune. Bosun Kugat, the ship's vampire, has reported some intriguing meteorological and magnetic phenomena. Peas for supper. Captain's Log, Ides of March plus three. Mr. Poxhaven and Second Officer Wilmot escaped from the brig by means of top secret technology, the details of which are redacted. With inhuman patience I repeated, until I was blue in the face, that there is no such creature as a Neptunian penguin. We drew straws to decide whether to descend the hole at the north or the south pole. I used the last of our drinking straws. As soon as we leave Neptune's orbit, we shall have to locate and dock at a supply planetoid to replenish the drinking straws and several grocery items. I should not have to fret about such matters when there is a hole at a pole to descend on rope ladders. Captain's Log, Ides of March, again. Mr. Poxhaven, Second Officer Wilmot, Dr. Von Strabinzi, and I are on a platform within the interior of the hollow Neptune. 
Our first discovery after we descended on rope ladders is that there is no such concept as time down here. According to the bizarre scratchings on the wall, it is, always has been, and always will be the Ides of March. There is no sign of any penguins. Mr. Poxhaven is relieved. Second Officer Wilmot, tearful. Our breathing apparatus is holding up as well as can be expected. Less so our coat hangers, which prove wholly useless in the Neptunian interior. I have asked Dr. Von Strabinzi to analyze the problem using his powerful artificial brain. Captain's Log. Still the Ides of March. We have moved from the platform into a subterranean area which appears to be some kind of Neptunian warehouse. The scratchings on the wall here are, if anything, even more bizarre. Second Officer Wilmot claims to have seen several leafcutter ants, more or less the size of earthly leafcutter ants, but none of them were carrying leaves. Or so he says. We suspect he is hallucinating. I have taken the precaution of placing the redacted contraption on his head just to be on the safe side. Captain's Log, the Ides of March. Yesterday, whatever that means down here in the Neptunian interior, Mr. Poxhaven discovered the nozzles, thousands upon thousands of them. Every so often they spurt forth some kind of nougat with the consistency of jelly. It is pink and white-ish, thus not unlike earthly nougat. Dr. Von Strabinzi volunteered to ingest some. Before any of us could stop him, he punctured his breathing apparatus with the points of a pair of pinking shears and sucked up nougat straight from a nozzle. When he did not immediately keel over and lie splayed on the floor, twitching with convulsive fits, Mr. Poxhaven and Second Officer Wilmot followed suit. On my next voyage, I must recruit less impetuous crew members. I put two and two together in my pulsating captainy brain and blamed the nougat from the nozzles. Captain's Log, the Ides of March. There is no let up in the twitching and convulsive fits. While I wait for my men either to recover or die, I try to concentrate on straightening out at least one of these coat hangers, at least for five minutes. Communications with the ship have deteriorated to meaningless static. Out of the corner of my eye, a little while ago, in the shadows, I think I saw a penguin or a leafcutter ant. How I wish I had thought to bring a back number of the Reader's Digest with me. For God's sake, look after our people. Join us next week for Key's exciting follow-up on the suet siphons of Saturn. Or if you're sold now, head over to hootingyard.org and click the big Buy the Book graphic to the right. The anthology Brute, Beauty, and Valor, and Act. Oh, air, pride, plume, here, buckle. You can't miss it. That's hootingyard.org. Let's hit a drabble. Drabble.
Drabbles are hundred-word stories, one hundred words on the dot, an exercise in brevity and precision. Try writing one yourself and send it into submissions at drabblecast.org. This week's Drabble is called A Good Magician, and it comes to us from Lawrence Simon. Lawrence has challenged himself to write a hundred-word story every day until the day he dies. He's not dead yet, so he posts them up to the hundred-word story podcast at podcasting.isfullofcrap.com. He also holds weekly challenges there where he posts a topic and you have a week to write and record a story of your own. Oh, and he likes cats. I love doing my magic act for the kids. After all these years, the tux still fits me, although it and my cape, hat, and wand look a bit worse for wear. And then there's Pete, my bunny. How long do they live? because I've had him for over 30 years. No trick here. Rabbit food, the occasional carrot or radish as a treat, and free reign of the house. Perhaps he's magical, or some kind of government super bunny. I offer him a carrot. Are you a secret super bunny, Pete? Pete is silent. A good magician never reveals his tricks. That leads us to our feature story this week, Pop Quiz by Curtis James McConnell. Mr. McConnell's rich and varied experience often ventures into the weird. He's held the oddest of odd jobs, including phone actor, secret shopper, croupier, and stand-up comic. Technically, he's B.B. King's half-blood brother. Both he and his stories dwell two hours away from O. Henry's and Robert E. Howard's houses. He's been to all 50 United States and ventured into Mexico and Canada, but only in his inner world could a Stipean invasion be staved off with such a foolproof test. This story first appeared in the anthology First Contact by Digital Science Fiction. The story is read to you by Jacob Dalkey. So, without further ado, we bring you Pop Quiz by Curtis James McConnell. Willie sat fearfully in a small room behind the small table. He jumped just a hair when the door opened suddenly. A man in a wrinkled suit and tie carried a large sheet of laminated text. Good evening, sir. I am Sub-Ambassador Darren Dolan, Municipal Class Authority. I understand you've been arrested on suspicion of stipend conspiracy, a war crime even in a time of ceasefire. If you are inhabited, I must remind you that there are certain alien words that cannot be pronounced by human tongue, and I ask that your occupants please take no offense at our official approximate pronunciation. I am compelled by treaty to read you the following. By the Earth Stipe Treaty of the 23rd local year of our interaction, amended, suspected Stipean sympathizers may be detained by duly empowered authorities only as long as the unbreachable sovereignty of the Stipean body host is not violated and only for the purpose of deportation upon confirmation of Stipean inhabitants. Tests to determine inhabitants are only permissible if they do not breach body host sovereignty in any fashion. The breaching of a body host as well as the deportation of a non-Stipean host to Stipean space shall constitute an act of war and a resumption of hostilities between the two worlds. Sub-Ambassador Dolan placed the cardboard on the table. What that means, Dolan said while Willie read, in simple terms, if you're inhabited, your entire body down to your cell membranes is a stipean embassy. 
While we have many tests to determine inhabitants, the absolute sanctity in which stipians hold the inviolable boundaries of their body hosts prohibit most of them. No blood tests, no saliva swabs. Willie looked at him blankly. Dolan sighed and with poorly concealed boredom said, A bit of a problem for us. We pretty much have to guess whom to deport. If we guess wrong, either way hostilities resume. Dolan then spoke firmly, increasing by a notch or two the seriousness of the situation. Fortunately, we have a non-invasive test, which so far is 100% accurate. This wasn't entirely true. They had never deported falsely, but they had no way of knowing how many inhabited hosts had passed the test and remained on Earth. We are allowed to monitor your reactions to the test, response time, fed-away production, pupil dilation, things like that. Since the tests are non-invasive, refusal to take them means... And if you're stipian, please forgive the sickening crudity of the term, but it's the kindest one of our savage earth language. If you decline to take the test, we may violate your host sovereignty to the point of cessation of life. Dolan smiled. No need to be afraid. We won't. Even if you take the test and are found to be inhabited, all we will do is return you to stipe for wiping. Personally, I'd like to say stipian memory wipe makes you no longer human. But if you waive your own body sovereignty and allow yourself to become inhabited, you're not really human anymore, are you? Willie winced visibly. Dolan continued. But I'm not here to judge. That's what the test is for. Since I'm sure you're still human, well, he grinned disarmingly, consider it like you hadn't studied and now you have to take a pop quiz. He tried to be as furtive as he could, scanning Willie's face for the unconscious look which would be produced if the stipend inhabitant were unfamiliar with the term. Thank God for the test, he thought. I could never guess. I'm not even entirely sure what I'm supposed to be scanning for. Still, every now and then a stipend would think he'd given himself away, get scared, and confess. Dolan added, And if you are inhabited, after you take the test, I am authorized to grant you a confessional immunity. That is, if you confess and give us the names of inhabited persons, your sentence will be reduced in direct proportion to the number of tested deportations your confession produces. Now, if you follow these gentlemen... Willie sat nervously in yet another room, smaller than the first, behind yet another bare table. A uniformed officer came in with a small cube box, packed, taped for shipping. Two soldiers were with him, along with a man in a white coat who was holding a clip pad and a big digital timer with glaring red numbers. This he sat on the table to one side of Willie, where everyone could see its readout. Can I have a cigarette, Willie squeaked. Sorry, can't do that, the cop said. It's an act of war for us to allow your host to... Well, if I was stipend, would I ask for smoke, Willie croaked. Some do, Clip Padman said. They ask, but we can't run the risk of calling their bluff. Treaty, Willie said. Yes, it's pretty tight. He pulled out a piece of paper. Willie looked. He hadn't seen paper in so long, not writing paper. The man opened a small white box with a dark blue spongy interior. This is called ink, the man emphasized. I know what it is, Willie said. I... Did take history, you know. No doubt, the man smirked. Is that supposed to be some kind of crack, Willie said? Supposed to mean I must have taken some earth prep course back at Stipia before I inhabited this host body? Please don't take offense, sir, the man said. Now everything I ask you to do from this point forward is officially part of the test. We're going to put our thumbprint on this piece of paper. You will then be asked to swallow it. If you are inhabited, your occupant will have our IDs. If we violate your sovereignty over your body, the Stipian government is allowed to request our death in lieu of a resumption of hostilities. I doubt they request something so fundamentally abhorrent to them, but it's a safeguard on our end to make sure we respect sovereignty. 
Each present thumbprinted the paper on the clip pad man pushed it to Willie. Willie looked at it doubtfully. Everything I ask you to do is part of the test. It's slightly uncomfortable for earth bodies, inhabited or not, so your reticence is natural, but you cannot refuse. We wish to watch your reactions as you eat it as part of the test. One of the soldiers set a glass of water on the table. Willie took a couple sips and cleared his throat. <laughs> Dry throat, he explained. Uh, nervous, totally natural human reaction. The men said nothing. Willie folded and swallowed the paper with some more gulps of water. The man looked at the big red timer readout and made some notations on a clip pad. Aren't you going to tell me your names, Willie asked. It's only polite. Not that I'm adhering to any politeness that you always hear them stipies railing about. Now, now, Willie, the man in the white coat said. Six hours ago, they were your friends. No need to use insulting terms just to try and form human camaraderies with us. I am human, Willie said. We'll see, white coat said, staring at the clipboard. After a few seconds, it gave off a little beat. Ah, he said, with a happy little smile on his face as he looked up. Is that good? Did I pass? Willie asked. Not yet, the man said. That's just one reading. He stepped back and the uniformed cop walked forward with a little cardboard box that had been shipped. Willie could see it was from Boston. I, I, I grew up in Framingham, Willie said. He took another sip of water and heard White Coat's fingers make some notes on the clip pad. Is that a fact, White Coat asked disinterestedly. What's that got to do with anything, hmm? Well, it's in Massachusetts, Willie explained. I don't follow you, White Coat said. Well, the package there, it's, it's postmarked Boston. I, I grew up in Framingham. Mm-hmm, I see. A couple of clip pad entries, a beat, two more. Look, these aren't some prep memories encoded to my neurons. I really did grow up in Framingham. White Coat stopped entering and looked up. And just how do you know about a neurons and the inhabitants' wipeout effect? Willie straightened up. <laughs> Come on, I'm no dummy. I'm, I'm up for conspiracy. That, that means you know I've been hanging with stipes. I'm not inhabited, but I do know how it works when you are. It's like totally wipes out your brain and prep memories have to be re-encoded. But I did grow up in Framingham. You, you can check. White Coat gave a prim little... Uh-huh. That's nice. Kind of smile. The cop said, We have checked, Willie. Well, then you know that they can't re-encode the same memories. It would be like trying to forge the Mona Lisa brushstroke for brushstroke from just one picture postcard like they used to send. You know, close but no cigars, they used to say. You sure are history buff, Willie, White Coat said. Picture postcards? Phrases like that haven't been used in three centuries. You must study a lot. Go void your end earth pipes, Willie said. Took another sip of water. Well, at least you're getting closer, White Coat chuckled. That one's only been out about a generation or two. Fuck you, Willie said. That one's always in style. He looked around defiantly. Well, could I use that word if I was a stipey? Not without choking, generally, the cop said. Or not without a PPE response of .64 or greater, White Coat commented, looking at the readout with a sort of subdued, triumphant concern. I don't even know what a PPE response is, Willie said. So how could I fake it? Who said you faked it, White Coat said. Look, Willie said, I, I'm as human as you guys. I got in over my head with the stipey thing. I, I want out. I want the confession option that Sub-Ambassador Lerp was talking about. The cop slammed his hand down on the table, startling Willie. You will not, in my presence, refer to a Sub-Ambassador as a Lerp, he informed him. Well, whatever. He looked cowardly to me. I want the confession option. I got names. 
After the test, White Coat said, looking at the clip pad. Several sporadic beeps came out of it. Once it's begun, we do it all. Then you can confess. We take all the names you give us. Oh, I get it, Willie said. That was part of it. Reactions to sudden fear, seeing if my calling him a lerp was real and stuff. Let's just say it was duly noted for evaluation purposes, White Coat said. Willie asked, could I get another glass of water, please? The cop refilled it without a word. Willie drank. You know, they told us we're getting deported unacceptably, they said. Uh, something about every single inhab who gets arrested gets found out. And just who are they, one soldier said. My friends, ex-friends, stipees, they, they said if we get caught, we take the test, they'll find us, bail us out, debrief us, but find out what the test is. The group looked silently at Willie, who announced, I, got, I gotta go to the bathroom. The cop walked over to a small door in the wall that Willie hadn't even noticed. He opened it and beckoned Willie in like a doorman expecting a tip. When Willie came back, he said, I gotta tell you, I don't want to take this test because I'm wipeable, you see. I'm not inhabited, but I wave my sob with them. They can legally wipe me, and all of a sudden I don't want them to, but they can, and if I take this test, I have something to give them. And that's how they work, he continued. Every time you test a non-hab, if he's wave sob, they go and wipe him. But before they do, they get every little piece of information each time, trial and error, but they're finding out more and more about what the test is each time. You keep changing stuff, but they figure out it's diversions, and they try and eliminate it down to what gets done every time. And I don't want to be white, man. Aw, oh, jeez, guys. I don't want to turn into some kind of lerp here, but doesn't the fact that I'm telling you all this help me? We all make choices, Willie, one of the soldiers said. Some we can live with, some we can't. So far, the ones you've made, you can live with. You haven't crossed too many lines. But this is a painless, non-evasive test, and once you're done, you heard the sub-ambassador. Give us names, we'll protect you. You won't get wiped. <laughs> He's just municipal class. He can't run a protection program. It's really coming home to me right now. I, I want to be human here. I am human. I want to stay human. <laughs> I don't mind telling you, man, I'm lurping out about this wiping thing. The clip pad quietly gave some functional beeps. Are we ready, gentlemen? White Coat asked. They said nothing. The cop set a small box cutter between Willie and the box, and Willie looked at it with fear. That's a knife, White Coat explained. I know what it is, Willie growled. Get it away. It's part of the test, White Coat soothed. I don't care. You know I can't touch that, even if I'm not inhabited. I'm CP certified. Yes, we know, Soldier said. This is not a violent situation. Your congenital passivism has no legal status in this case. You could not refuse to take this test. You know, that, that's why I started hanging with these stipes. Empathetic pacifism, you know? The whole body host soft thing, invaluable as an embassy. You're like your own little nation within a real country. And that all really appeals, you know? I'm sure it does. My coat seemed to be genuinely sympathetic, if not actually caring. But part of this test is we need to time how long it takes you to open this box. And yes, of course, your CP norms will be factored in. Would you like some more water before we start? Uh, yeah, no forget the water but you just had trouble swallowing just let's let's do it he took up the box cutter and winced as he held the blade before his own face he then touched the box gingerly as if it was a living thing and slowly slit the packaging tape this takes me back he said with bravado actual packing tape <laughs> not a uniseal box i haven't seen packing tape and since you were in framingham the soldier scoffed will he stop slicing Yes, he said deliberately, in Framingham. He finished cutting the tape. You, you never refuted my argument, Willie said. He pushed the box forward without looking at it. 
White Coat held up a finger for silence and entered things with little quiet beeps onto the clip pad. After a long pause, he said, What argument was that? About my memories. You could check. Even the most mimical prep memory can't match everything. Yes, that's true, Willie. Unfortunately, since we have no way of knowing what your original and neural map looked like, the only thing we'd be able to check would be basic facts, albeit millions of them. We might find a mismatch, something they forgot to encode, but it would take so long and be too iffy. No, this test would be quite satisfactory. So we're done, Willie asked. <laughs> Hardly. Now open the box and take everything out one at a time. I want you to set some objects on the left and some objects on the right. Which is which, based on what criteria, Willie asked. Any criteria you'd like. You won't even need to tell us. Just set some on your left and some to your right. At least one object on each side. Willie pulled the box closer to him and took out the bubble wrap package within. He methodically unfolded the bubble wrap flat on the table, smoothing it with outward strokes of flattened palms. A small pile of objects lay in the middle of the bubble wrap. Willie reached out and selected a shoelace, setting it to the right. The soldiers exchanged a significant look. The small plastic carrot went to his left. The tiny rubber ball he put to his right, along with the tiny yellow rubber ball. The tiny blue rubber ball he put to his left. He picked up a small misshapen object, toneless and gray in color. What is this? Just select where it goes, please. But it has to have a name. It has one. A name is not important. Well, then if it's not important, just tell me. I'd like to know, please, Willie said. Then, when White Coat began entering under the clip pad, Willie quickly said, Never mind, I, I don't need to know. He put the object to the right and picked up the next object, a spool of black thread. This one went to his left, triggering another barely disguised significant look between the soldiers. Willie hesitated, then picked up a shiny purple knitting needle and also set it to the left. A small egg he held in the palm of his hand, rolling it gently back and forth, he set to the right. That left a bit of string, a rubber band and a paper clip and a pen. All these he swept to his left with the palm of his hand. White Coat scanned the arrangement to the right with a clip pad and said, Raise your right hand, please. Palm towards me, fingers together. Now spread them. Open. Closed. Good. White Coat moved the box and the bubble wrap aside, careful not to touch any of the objects. And I'm going to scan them again, in five minutes. During that time, you may move any object from one side to another. You must move them one at a time. You don't have to move any. You can move an object and move it back. You can even move all the objects to one side if you move them one at a time. You may keep one, and only one object, but you don't have to keep any. Is that understood? Uh, yeah. Okay, and begin. The only thing Willie did, and this was after nearly three minutes had elapsed, was move the tiny blue rubber ball from his left to his right, and then sat back and crossed his arms. White Coat waited the full five minutes until the digital beep went off from the clip pad. Now, I am legally obligated to ask you, before I scan, do you have things arranged exactly the way you want them? Ah, uh, I guess. You can't guess, Willie. If there's an object you aren't sure about, go ahead and move it. Uh, I'm fine. Are you certain? Because once I do the scan, the results cannot be changed. Are you sure? All right! Willie snapped. I'm sure. Just do... The damn scan, it'll show you I'm human. I'm trying to help you here, Willie. Do you understand what I'm saying? He peered intently at Willie. Willie leaned forward and looked hard at the objects. He reached forward, but it was impossible to tell if he would have gone to the right or the left because his hand just froze, just as he was lifting it. He dropped his hands in futility. Fuck it, I'm done. White Coat sighed and shook his head. He scanned the objects. 
Okay, boys. And then walked out of the room without looking back. Both soldiers moved forward. Each had a bag labeled right and left. They put the objects in the appropriate bag, sealed it, and left. The cop reached out and took the box cutter from the far corner of the table where Willie laid it and left. In another room, everyone sat back on a comfy couch watching Willie on the monitor. And what do you think, boys? White Coat asked. Definitely a deport case, the cop pronounced. Good mimic, though, one soldier said. The other one nodded in agreement. I'm with you, boys. Too shady, too much ancient history, too many cover stories, far too many slip-ups. Even a couple nice bluffs. They get so cocky over the treaty, the cop spat. They watched. Willie sat there. His knee bounced spastically. Willie read the address on the box. He looked inside it. The knee kept pumping. Then Willie picked up the bubble wrap. He turned it in his hands along the edge till he'd gone through all four. And then he popped one of the bubbles. Damn it, White Coat said. We, we were all wrong, the cop chuckled. Willie continued to pop the bubble wrap. Think they'll ever catch on, one of the soldiers asked. Nah, the other one said. They're too methodical. They don't understand the pointless physical activity. It just doesn't jive with them. Culturally impossible to counterfeit. And even if they do, the cop said, they just won't be able to pop it. It's too close to their own physiology. They can't bring themselves to do it. Too repugnant. Whereas we, he said, reaching for a square bubble wrap. Yes, White Coat said with a dreamy smile. Already nine pops into a square. It's quite irresistible, isn't it? our story. Hope you enjoyed. Aliens would be so confused trying to figure our shit out, wouldn't they? We've got a peanut that wears a top hat and a monocle, and a groundhog that can predict the future. I can just see them backing away slowly into their UFOs, like Pinterest. I don't... I just don't get it. Alright, moving on to our 100 character story winner this week. First time winner, Great Northern Troll, with this one here. There is no life on any other planet. We are unique. Surely we are made in God's glorious image, feathered upon hatching. Nice. 100 character stories, not counting spaces. We call them twabbles, and we have a weekly contest open to all where we pick a winner, post it out in our Twitter feed, and then run it on the show. Find the TwitFix section in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org to submit, or just follow us on Twitter for the good stuff each week at the Drabblecast. So that's our show, folks. Remember, Drabblecast is produced with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change or sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes or wherever you pick up our show. Blog about us. Tell a friend. Spread the weird. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, David Flett. Find David's work at weird-birds.blogspot.com. So, our program is brought to you by myself, Nikki Drayden, Managing Editor, our Submissions Editor, Nathan Lee, Editor-at-Large, Matthew Bay, our Art Director, Bo Kyer, and with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, David Steffen, Jake Webb, and Jonathan McNeil. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you there are no such thing as Neptunian penguins. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine. 
erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.